Welcome to the Dental Dilemmas podcast brought to you by the Council on Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs. I'm your host, Ansley Depp. I'm a fourth-year member on CEDJA. And joining me today is my co-host, James Purvis, our new dentist member on CEDJA. Today, we are going to be interviewing Dr. Jim Mancini, a general dentist who is the chair of the Council on Advocacy for Access and Prevention and the dental director of Meadville Medical Center in Northwest Pennsylvania as well as a member of the Pennsylvania Dental Association. And also joining us today is Dr. Jeannie Bocamp. Dr. Jeannie Bocamp is a board-certified pediatric dentist who is a private practitioner in Clarksville, Tennessee. She earned her degree from the University of Tennessee Health Center in Memphis and then completed her residency at University of Tennessee. Jeannie has been involved in her community and church, as well as local, state, and national dental societies. She has been active with the American Academy of Pediatric Dentists, serving as their most recent president, finishing in 2022. Dr. Bochamp served on both the American Dental Association's Council of Governmental Affairs and the Council on Access, Prevention, and Interprofessional Relations. She is also active with the Tennessee Dental Association, serving as president in 2021 and is presently chairman of the Council on Governmental Affairs. Both have been active with committees with Medicaid in their respective states. So today, on this episode, we are going to discuss the ethical considerations of treating or referring a child in pain and the ethical dilemmas associated with finding dental care while using a government-issued health care, such as Medicaid or CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program. I thought we would start with a story. So according to an article published in PBS Frontline in January 2007, 15-year-old Diamante Driver's tooth was bothering him. The same was the case for his younger brother, Deshaun, who needed six teeth extracted. Both boys from Maryland were at some points covered by Medicaid. At critical times, though, they were dropped from the program because according to their mother, Alice, their paperwork may have been sent to a homeless shelter where they lived for a short time. A lawyer for the Public Justice Center of Baltimore was helping Alice Driver navigate the dental system for Deshaun, making more than 20 calls in order to find a dentist that would accept Medicaid. After he was taken to the hospital to be treated for a headache, Diamante became sick, eventually needing two brain surgeries secondary to a tooth infection. He died less than a month later in February of 2007. If this had been caught early, Extracting Diamante's damaged tooth would have cost $80. The bill for his two weeks of care at Maryland Children's Hospital was between $200,000 and $250,000. At the time of his death, only about 900 of Maryland's 5,500 dentists accepted Medicaid. Unfortunately, this is not an uncommon problem in the U.S., and many of our children have a difficult time finding a dentist that accepts government-funded dental care, such as CHIP or Medicaid. So to our doctors today, Do we have any data regarding how large a population we have in the United States where a child cannot get dental care, we're in pain? Sure. Again, as the chair of CAP, this is something that's actually something we deal with with every meeting. So 
In the U.S., 91 million patients are covered by Medicaid, obviously all 50 states. Uh, according to the National Institute of Health, less than 30% of the general dentists and less than 50% of the pediatric dentists in the country participate in that program. In, in rural areas, it's even worse because it's less than 20%. In some states, it's less than 5% if you count rural areas. My state, Pennsylvania, for instance, I'll use pediatric dentists since we have one here. Of the 67 counties in Pennsylvania, 47 of them do not have a pediatric dentist. And of that number, most of them don't have a pediatric dentist in a county that touches them. So in essence, if a child needs advanced care in my state, they're driving easily 100 miles to go see a pediatric specialist. Wow. Dr. Bochamp? Yeah, I mean, that's a sad statistic for sure. And I think children with private insurance, only like 50% go to the dentist. But with Medicaid and CHIP children, only about a third go to the dentist once a year. So just knowing that, I don't know hard data, but you can tell it's going to be hard to find a dentist if they're in fun. Do either of you guys have a story you could share with us about a child that you have run into in pain that maybe had some issues obtaining care? Sure. Again, I work in rural Pennsylvania. So one of the programs that I've championed in my state is Give Kids a Smile. I'm a big fan of Give Kids a Smile program. And so we would run a Give Kids a Smile program every year. I would bring between three and 400 kids in. And I'd bring as many providers as I could and reach out to the community. It was a big community event. So one day I was doing a Give Kids a Smile. And I just, it, this is an absolute fluke. I happened to be standing outside with the public health nurse from my county, just talking about the program. And a bus pulled up and a little girl got off of the bus and just stood there. And we went up and said, hi, why are you here? And as soon as she smiled, we could see that all her front teeth were blown out. All her teeth were infected. Well, here we found out that this little girl went to a school that was probably about an hour away, but somehow the school nurse knew about our program. And with her own money, she paid a bus service to take this little girl to our facility. In Pennsylvania, that's actually illegal. You cannot put a kid on a bus without a chaperone. She risked her own license because this little girl had been in her office for 54 consecutive days about dental pay. She came to our event. I happened to have two residents from Children's Hospital who were helping us that day, put her right with them. They got her into the Children's Hospital program. I happened to see that little girl a year later and her teeth were beautiful. They did all her work. She had a bunch of crowns done and she was perfect health. I actually talked to the school nurse who said she had never been in the office ever since. We treated that little girl and that was an absolute fluke, but that little girl had nowhere to go. Her parents had called over 30 offices prior to this happening wow. and couldn't find anyone to treat her. So that's my story. That sounds like you really, that that was a life changed right there. Um, that was a life changed. What about you, Dr. Bojan? I know. That's why I love to say every child needs a dental home. So if they get in a pain, then they can have that access to find a dentist. A couple of weeks ago, I saw a young boy who I had seen two years ago had a mouthful of decay and all his first molars were decayed and two of them were possible root canals. I referred to an endodontist 
and scheduled him back in our office. The mom was, uh, long story, on and off with a job, lost insurance, got insurance, and then got on the Medicaid. And there were no endodontists that would treat this child. And we kept calling mom, and we tried to refer to several other offices within 100 miles. There was not an endodontist. So ended up having to take out all four first molars on this 11-year-old boy that you just hate to have them lose those teeth that young. Yeah, for sure. So do you feel like there's a guideline or a standard for how soon someone in pain should be seen? I went through our ADA principles of ethics and code of professional conduct to see if it offered any ethical guidelines. And what it says under Section 3, Principle of Beneficence, the dentist has a duty to promote the patient's welfare. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to act for the benefit of others. The most important aspect of this obligation is the competent and timely delivery of dental care within the bounds of clinical circumstances presented by the patient. So that sounds to me like our code of ethics is giving us some ethical guidelines. What do you all think? I know for myself, I'm not an expert in uh, the, the ethics of the ADA. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but, I know, but I know Bruce knows it over there, so that's excellent. But yes, I do know that there's a code in there that states that we're here to treat patients. We're mostly here to treat patients who are especially in distress. And for me, a child who they cannot drive, they cannot pick the dentist that they go to, that's somebody who's in distress. And if they show up, you have to help them. It's not like they chose you because it was easy for them to walk there. They chose you because it was the nearest place that they could go to for a situation that they know you can deal with. You would like to think you would see them as soon as possible. You would want them to know that they're going to be treated and not just told to go away. I think CMS is looking at trying to have a standard for certain appointment types, like you have to be seen in so many days. Okay. And I think that might need to be in place for children in pain. I, that, that's a great, great point. Yeah. I don't know about you all, but when I was working with my staff in the dental office, I, I basically used the golden rule. How would you want to be treated? Right. And I can remember a time when we saw somebody at 445 and my staff was upset. But the next morning I looked at them and said, what would you have wanted done in that situation if it was you? If it was your child, what would you have wanted done? And so sometimes I think we have to remember that. And that brings up a good point. We have parents that'll call our offices all the time. The children are in pain and they're advocating for their children. I practice in rural eastern North Carolina and many times the access to care is just not there. And by the time these parents get on the phone, they're desperate. They're advocating for a child that's in pain. How do you train your staff, specifically your administrative staff, to field these calls, talk to these parents when they're calling, advocating for their children in pain? Where I work, which is a rural community health center, their biggest word is community. So my staff knows a parent calls for a child, that child gets in. Whether it's that day or the next day, that child gets in right away. Whatever the schedule is, that's irrelevant. And for the most part, it's not like we're bringing that child in and we're starting 17 procedures. We're bringing the child in to find out what's the problem and then how can we deal with that problem. So it's more conversation than it is dentistry. And that's important because I want that family to feel like someone's going to help them. There's somebody there for them to go to. Again, 
a lot of times they're not even expecting something to be done, but more like, can we get the process started? And that's what we do. I know my staff is taught if it's pain from trauma, the words are, how fast can you get here? But whether they're a patient of record or not, no matter what insurance, if it's pain from a toothache, we get them in that day, sometime during that day. We just feel that's important. Absolutely. And it brings up another point. Is there ever a time conceivably that you can think of where it is actually not appropriate to see that patient or or at least refer them to somebody who, who can treat them? I, I've looked into the ADA Code of Ethics on this, and in Section 2, we have the principle of non-maleficence, and it reads, the dentist has a duty to refrain from harming the patient. The principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to protect the patient from harm. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include keeping knowledge and skills current, knowing one's own limitations, and when to refer to a specialist or other professional, end quote. So in that context, is there ever an instance where we don't need to be seeing these patients? If you're asking my opinion, the answer is no. <laughs> Again, like I said, what are we doing? If, if a parent calls us a child's in pain, I'm, I'm not doing 700 procedures. I'm doing one. What's the problem? Simple as that. So there's no reason to not see the child. I agree. I'm not an anesthesiologist. I'm not sedating children. I don't know how to do that, but I know somebody who does. I think you have an obligation to at least refer and help them. If that's not in your wheelhouse, what they need, you can find somebody to help them. I treat some children in my practice. Many times I'm, I'm pretty selective as to how that happens. If I've got a longstanding family and they've got a child that needs to be seen, I'll, I'll do my very best to provide the care that, that they need. But th there are procedures and things I'm just not comfortable with. And what do you do if you're a dentist and, and you're just generally not comfortable treating pediatric patients? And say you have somebody call probably after hours or somebody that needs to be seen and Historically, in your office, you're not generally seeing children, but this is a child in need. A parent is calling, advocating for their child. What do you do there? For, again, and for myself, for people that I practice with, we make sure we know who the people are in the area that do that. Where are they located? What's their address? What's their phone number? So we can refer the child to them. And not only just know who they are, but physically talk to them, meet with them, have lunch. Because I want to keep that relationship because I want to have somewhere to send somebody that needs care that I cannot give them. And if I keep that relationship going, I, I have great relationships with the insurers. So if I have a problem with something that I can't find, I know who to call in their insurance company to ask them. Who do you refer to? Who do you send to? Give me a number. That's just simple. You would do that. No matter what type of practice you have, you do some kind of referral. Every practice does. This is no different. Agree. You need to be able to refer if you can't do it. Find somebody that will take care of them. So I'm going to push a little deeper into this issue. This brings up the concept of abandonment, perhaps where you are getting a patient into the practice, you are getting them out of the immediate pain that they're in, you're treating the acute infection, but perhaps you're a dentist that may not provide comprehensive pediatric care. Perhaps you're not as comfortable providing that care that they might need down the road, it brings up an issue of abandonment. And again, we can go to the Code of Ethics here. And in Section 2F, we read, once a dentist has undertaken a course of treatment, the dentist should not discontinue that treatment without giving the patient adequate notice 
and the opportunity to obtain the services of another dentist. Care should be taken that the patient's oral health is not jeopardized in the process so that the dentist may elect to provide emergency treatment for a minor, but discontinue the care. So if you're providing this emergency care for a minor patient, you've gotten them out of pain, you've treated the acute problem, but suddenly you realize maybe I'm, I'm not really stacked up in my skill set to manage this patient long term. How do you handle that? What's the time frame? What do you do? What does that look like? It's kind of the same deal. If you can establish who in your area, in your region, can see those patients and they're not able to do the emergency at that time, you could do the emergency, but I feel very comfortable in sending them on over to whoever can take care of them for the rest of the work. Yeah, for me, referral is treatment. Again, I don't do everything, but I can refer. You know, if you go by the letter of the law there, that's part of your treatment. It's refer the patient on. No different, I don't do third molars. No, so I refer to an oral surgeon. Okay? I, I'm treating that patient. I'm getting them the care that they need. So I'm going to throw this question out to both of you. Do you ever feel like it's inappropriate for a dentist or a dental clinic in your, your case scenario to refer a child in pain to an emergency department for evaluation? Because like you said, there are areas that have nothing within right. 100 miles. So when you look at that, the other risk is to do nothing. Right. So what do you think? Yeah, so, uh, again, ER referral is never the answer because obviously we all know there's no dentistry performed in ER. But if a child is in pain, there's a very good chance that child has an infection. And that is what the ER can provide for. Now, again, I stress this all the time. I, when I said before about referrals, you, you should also know who your ER is in your area and whether you can help them out or not. It's not hard. You can make that relationship. And two-way street, help the ER find people that they can refer to. Again, you're the expert, right? So you're the expert in, in dentistry. So help them. Give them a hand. Agreed. Yeah. If, if there's a trauma that might have other injuries, the ER is the place to go. If there's cellulitis, they might need IV antibiotics. That, absolutely. But you need to know who's there at the hospital. You need to, whether it's volunteer to give them a class on what to do for dental emergencies or whatever. But if you have a relationship, then you can work with them a lot easier. So some dentists might utilize an emergency department for referrals. I know when I finished my GPR, my general practice residency, it was kind of expected for us to sign up and be on hospital staff. So when I came out in 1993, I actually was part of my hospital staff and took referrals but a lot of the emergency rooms are not set up for dental treatment. And one of the issues I ran into was I would get calls at nighttime and have to go into my own office to see patients I did not know. So I feel like there has to be some kind of an obligation for maintaining a respectful and collaborative relationship with the hospital. What kind of follow-up do you think would be required of a dentist after a referral of a non-patient minor? I think if you do have that relationship with the ED at the hospital, you'll know what to do. I know, well, in 30 years of practice, I've only sent one child to the emergency room, and that was a child on Medicaid, had not been to a dentist, and had cellulitis, and I followed them to the hospital and had called ahead, told them what was coming, 
and they had him on IV antibiotics. And I had to talk with the pediatrician to admit because dentists weren't allowed to admit in the hospital. And then they gave me the okay a few hours later. And that night we did emergency surgery to extract the teeth and do an IND. And so I thought that was appropriate to go to the emergency room at that point, but I didn't just send them and not go. You followed up. I love that story because that is a perfect example of us interacting with other professionals, which is one of our tenets of the principles. And you interacted with the pediatrician to get care for that child and then followed back up with that. So I think that's an amazing example. Thank you for that one. So let's talk. Do either of you feel that the profession of dentistry has an ethical responsibility to accept Medicaid patients in the office? Why or why not? Having been both in private practice and now public health, I see the reason that people don't join the Medicaid system. It's a daunting task. The paperwork is tremendous and the scrutiny of it is tremendous. I get it. But again, in the context of what we're talking about here, you can still help. In Pennsylvania, again, I use Pennsylvania because that's where I live. There's less than 17% of the dentists in Pennsylvania send more than a thousand Medicaid claims per year. Now, no one's asking, I would never say all of us have to send a thousand Medicaid. I get it, but there's no reason you can't at least be part of the solution. You don't have to be fully invested like my practices, which is 90% Medicaid. You don't have to be that, but you can be part of the solution. We have counties in Pennsylvania, whole counties in Pennsylvania that have no Medicaid providers. And not just a town, not just a neighborhood, but entire counties. We have seven counties that have no Medicaid dentists. That shouldn't happen. We need to do better than that. Well, I think the code gives us some guidance here. In the Justice Section 4 opening paragraph, it says the dentist has a duty to treat people fairly. The principle expresses a concept that professionals have a duty to be fair in their dealings with patients, colleagues, and society. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include dealing with people justly. However, though, Section 4 says, while dentists in serving the public, they may exercise reasonable discretion in selecting patients for the practices. So there's a little bit of some contradiction in the code. It is giving the dentist some autonomy to make their own decisions, but we are bound by the basic principle of beneficence to act for the benefit of others. What do you think, Dr. Bushing? Well, I do think we're all healthcare providers, so you'd like to think you want to help, especially a child in pain. But the burden administratively is enormous, very frustrating. I do think that's when you refer if you need to. But I I am proud that ADA is working with AAPD and AAP, all trying to help at the state and federal levels to help the provider issues, just the burdens that we face. So hopefully that'll get better. And that brings up a great question because perhaps as a professional, I don't take Medicaid in my practice, but do you think I have a responsibility maybe to see that child in pain, even if they cannot pay, maybe, or even an ethical responsibility to donate my time? Uh, First of all, if we're talking about a specific child, I absolutely 100% agree you should see that child. That child shows up at your office in pain and it's obvious, just morally, you should be helping that child. Again, you may not 
take their insurance. Maybe you do it for free. Maybe you basically are just saying, I'm going to take care of this child right here. That's what you should be doing. The larger picture, you're right. It's a whole different discussion. And there are so many reasons why you shouldn't as many as you should. I get it. But if you don't, for myself, at least ethically, you should know who does. It's not that hard. There's not that many that wherever you're practicing, you should know who's in the area that can treat this child and refer. Don't just say we don't take that insurance. Refer them there. Yeah, the principal beneficent section 3A does say dentists have an obligation to use their skills, knowledge, and experience for the improvement of the dental health of the public. And we are encouraged to be leaders in their community. So I agree totally with Kim. If you can't do it yourself, refer. And I know many, many dentists who don't want to be in a program and will just do things for free to get the child out of pain. And because they do want to help, but the burden sometimes aren't worth it. So they just want to help the child and then refer for further treatment. I think as practicing dentists, we do feel the ethical responsibility to help patients that are in need. And you briefly mentioned some of the burdens of access to care, things, the paperwork, things that people go through. But another issue is simply reimbursement. Absolutely. Low reimbursement levels are an enormous burden when it comes to access for care. And so do you think that there's an ethical responsibility that should be placed on our government or insurance companies as it relates to reimbursement? Oh, if you're asking me as a public health guy, my answer is 100% yeah. I am proud of the ADA because they do lobby for this. There's a Medicaid bill in the House that the, the ADA has lobbied very strongly for. I'm very, really proud of that. There's also state-level lobbying that they're doing, which is outstanding. Those things I'm really happy about. If you have this conversation with legislators, whole different story. I get it. But we need to keep pushing the message. And I'm proud of the ADA for pushing that message. Totally agree. There's some states that haven't had fee increases in 20 years. Tennessee is some of those issues for sure. And I think we're proud of our organizations that we are trying to go to bat to have fair benchmarks for reimbursement. Would either one of you be willing to speak in more detail about some of the initiatives that the ADA is currently embarking on to address this issue? Sure. I can tell you about CAP. Recently, we have a Medicaid implementation committee. I think I said that right. Anyway, so we've targeted six states in the United States that we're going to focus on increasing both participation by the providers and participation on the patient's end to get the patients in the door. We're working on strategies to do just that. And again, that comes from the ADA, from our lobbying efforts to show at the federal level or at the state level that we're also part of the solution, that we're helping to do this. So it's important to both lobby for it as well as bring it to the table that we're doing our part. Can you do your part? And that's one effort. Yeah, I know there's a push for advocacy to have a benchmark. They're going to CMS to see if they can have a minimum fee for certain procedures. What incredible efforts our American Dental Association are putting forth in regard to this. So going back to the issue at hand, can either of you speak specifically within your community to programs or initiatives that might exist to help a child that's dealing with acute pain, acute infection, 
someone that needs to be seen on an emergency basis? There's nothing in my community. <laughs> Sorry, but the Tennessee Dental Association is trying to work with our state companies to try to encourage them to increase participation. And we have just added more people to the roles. And so it's a real struggle right now to find providers. We're working on it. And in Pennsylvania, we have an access to care committee and we're working on that too. We are lobbying Congress. I actually just recently spoke in front of the state of Pennsylvania House of Representatives about this issue, about reimbursement, but more importantly, how the reimbursement affects the actual practice. Because it's an avenue that they don't think about, right? They think about the budget and they think about how this fits into the budgetary process. And they all thank me for telling them about issues that are within the office that are directly affected buy those reimbursement rates and recruitment of staff and things that they don't think about. And they thank me for telling them that. And for myself, I'm actually happy because they're actually working on a bill to raise the reimbursement rates in the state of Pennsylvania. So either they got tired of me talking or they actually listened to what I said, one or the other. They didn't want to see your face in their office anymore? Yeah, they were tired of seeing me. So as we wrap up, I wondered if either one of you guys had any other comments or even pleas that you would like to add to this conversation. Well, first, I hope that every dentist wants to do the right thing. Like you said, the golden rule. And I'm proud that our organization is working at the federal and the state level. They hear the dentist and what we're saying, and we are trying. It's a slow process, but we are trying to make things better. I'd personally like to thank Seja for inviting me. I can't believe they did. They know what I'm like, but surprisingly, they invited me. One of the things I'd like to ask our members is a simple question is just simply get to know who your representative is and who serves in the government for you, because that's who we need to influence. That's where it works. And it's not hard. These folks are looking for people to talk to. They're looking for issues that they want to bring to their, whether it's their committee or or to the, the full government. Go talk to them. You don't have to be a provider, but you could still lobby for us and and help us do our job. So that's the thing that I really want to push forward, that every member can do that. It's not hard. Well, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Mancini. Thank you, Dr. Beauchamp. Thank you, Dr. Purvis, for joining us today. A final note about this episode. Please see our show notes for a link to some contributing articles and stay tuned for future episodes. At the close of this episode, continue listening to hear the sections of the ADA Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct pertinent to the original Ethical Moment articles. This interview mentioned several of the principles of ethics. Four were notable. The principle of non-malfeasance, beneficence, veracity, and justice. The principle of non-malfeasance states, do no harm. The dentist has a duty to refrain from harming the patient. This principle expresses a concept that professionals have a duty to protect the patient from harm. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include keeping knowledge and skills current, knowing one's own limitations, and when to refer to a specialist or other professional, and knowing when and under what circumstances delegation of patient care to auxiliaries is appropriate. The second principle is beneficence or do good. The dentist has a duty to promote the patient's welfare. 
This principle expresses a concept that professionals have a duty to act for the benefit of others. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligation is service to the patient and the public at large. The most important aspect of this obligation is the competent and timely delivery of dental care within the bounds of clinical circumstances presented by the patient, with due consideration being given to the needs, desires, and values of the patient. The same ethical considerations apply whether the dentist engages in fee-for-service, managed care, or some other practice arrangement. Dentists may choose to enter into contracts governing the provision of care to a group of patients. However, contract obligations do not excuse dentists from their ethical duty to put the patient's welfare first. The third principle discussed was justice or fairness. The dentist has a duty to treat people fairly. This principle expresses a concept that professionals have a duty to be fair in their dealings with patients, colleagues, and society. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include dealing with people justly and delivering dental care without prejudice. In its broadest sense, this principle expresses the concept that the dental profession should actively seek allies throughout society on specific activities that will improve access to care for all. The last principle discussed was veracity or truthfulness. The dentist has a duty to communicate truthfully. This principle expresses a concept that professionals have a duty to be honest and trustworthy in their dealings with people. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include respecting the position of trust inherent in the dentist-patient relationship, communicating truthfully and without deception, and maintaining intellectual integrity. And as always, remember to keep ethics at the forefront of your daily practice and stay tuned as Steve Judd decodes more dental dilemmas. Thank you all. Thank you for having us.